0: encourage you to take your copy of God's Word, God's inerrant, infallible Word, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke this morning, as we will look at Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And of course, we are well into our series on the church, Church 101, as we are looking at the fundamentals of the church. We want to understand better uh, who the church is, what the church is, what's the church supposed to do, the implications of being the church. Because this fits right in with our shorted catechism, number one. How do we glorify, yeah, what is the chief end of man? Chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We could say the same for the church. What's the chief end of church? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So uh, we're looking through that to get a better handle what it means to be the church so we come to our passage this morning in Luke 15 to continue to guide us in this discussion and understanding. Let me pray for us as we come together before God's word. We pray to you, our, our good God and Father, you are gracious and so in your goodness and gracious we ask that you would forgive all of our faults and offenses, our sins and iniquities. You would send your Holy Spirit to us to illuminate us to help illuminate to us the true understanding of your word. Give us your grace that we need so we may handle your word purely and faithfully. May we do so to the glory of your holy name. May we do so for the edification of the church. May we do so for the good of our own salvation. So we ask these things in the name of the one who is grace and the one in whom the word is all about. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And because this is a lengthy passage, we will stay seated for the reading of it. But I'd you to join me as we read now Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and Took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, he is sounds so they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and he refused to go in his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, "Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property, of prostitutes, or you killed the fat calf for him." And he said to him, "Son, you are always with me, and all that's is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad." For this your brother was dead, he is alive, he was lost, and is now found. The grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. As you read through the Gospels, you find that in Jesus' teaching ministry, there's times he would use parables. He would use these parables to help teach the audience about a particular doctrine or truth that he was trying to emphasize. We say it could be a large crowd gathered, or sometimes it was just his twelve apostles that Jesus would tell this very simple and brief story. It's a story usually allegorical, But he would do so to help illustrate to the crowds or to his disciples, his apostles, what he was trying to teach. As we read these parables, we would see we see that he would pull from the world around him, from from nature around them. He would. Pull from the lives they were living. It was very much uh, stories that were from their day and from their time. And he did this to help better illustrate a gospel truth he was trying to teach. And so this morning we come to our passage. It comes from one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. I believe we are gathered all people who go to this church or go to all churches and ask them to name some of Jesus' parables, probably in the top five, if not three, or top two, we would name this one. It's the parable of the prodigal son. If you've been in or around church, you've probably heard Bible studies on it, you've heard sermons on it, you've gone through it, your personal devotions, probably been a Sunday school class or a VBS class about it with a coloring sheet because it's one of the more well-known of Jesus' parables, and that's for a good reason. Jesus taught this parable so that people would better understand the grace of God and how we respond to this grace. And we love to hear about grace. We love to sing about grace. Grace is wonderful. So this parable is well-known because it is such a gracious parable. And in it, we find that Jesus intends for us as his people, to see ourselves in the prodigal son. That all of us in our lives, at some time or another, have been like this prodigal son. We've rebelled against our Heavenly Father. We've rebelled against his grace. And then one day, we've through the leading of the Spirit, we've come to our senses and we repent of our sins and we come running back to God and to his grace. We read this and we see ourselves in the prodigal son. But Jesus also intends for, for us to take heed that we avoid being like the elder brother. As we read and we see, he's so hard-hearted against God and his grace. He not stand the fact that his rebellious younger brother who did a lot of dumb things would have grace shown to him. And the sad truth, I believe, for a lot of Christians is the more we grow in faith, we also grow in cynicism. It's easy to be a cynical Christian. And in that cynicism, we get cynical about grace. And we look at others who receive grace and we're like, that. we can be like the elder brother and go, God, why him? Why, the, they're jerks. They've been awful. They've been awful to others. They've been awful to me. They've been awful to my family. You'd be better off, let me give you a list of people you'd be better off showing grace to than these jerks. Because it's easy for us to know the grace of God and only want it for us and our friends and not for anybody else. It's a very personal parable with a very personal application. So when we think of this parable, we read this parable, we, we tend to read it as if the, the prodigal son is the main character. That this is primarily about him and, and what we can learn from him. I mean, in your Bible, is probably titled, The Parable of the Prodigal Son. But I would offer this morning that the prodigal son is not the main character of this parable. It's actually the father. It's the father who's meant to be the main character. Because as we have read, and Lord willing, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we will see this story is because of the father. Now, we're we're given many details of the prodigal son in his life and his decisions, but why is he in the situation that he finds himself in? Because of his reaction to his father's gracious goodness. Why does the son decide to return home? Why does the prodigal son decide to come back home? because he finally remembers he properly embraces his father's gracious goodness. And why does the elder brother get upset? He's mad at at his younger brother but he's more mad at his father because of the father's gracious goodness. It's the father who's meant to be the main character's parable. We can probably better think of this as the parable of the, of the waiting father, the, the parable of the welcoming father. So for us to understand this parable, we have to understand the father first. So then we can better understand why his two sons reacted the way that they did. So as we look at this parable, we find that Jesus is using the earthly father to teach about the heavenly father. The gracious goodness of the earthly father is meant to point us to and to reflect the gracious goodness of the heavenly father that he shows to his people. And Jesus very immediately introduces us to his gracious goodness when he says uh, right right in the beginning that the youngest son very boldly goes to his father and demands of his father's inheritance. Now, according to the Mosaic law, it's the firstborn son who's entitled to two thirds of his father's property. Every son after that would, recreate, would, would, would get a lesser portion of it. But to give a portion of the property one to sons before the father's death would have been unusual. And for the son to request it would have been highly insulting to the father. But that's exactly how Jesus introduces the parable, isn't it? This young son has decided, the younger son has decided he doesn't want to wait for his father to die. his father's in pretty good health or he's just impatient, but he cannot wait for his father to die for him to receive an inheritance. He's not married, so it's probably he was a teenager and he wanted his one-third of the estate. So in great arrogance and being very unloving, the father goes to his father, the son goes to the father one day and demands his party inheritance. He is ready for one-third that he believes is due to him. So understand there's an aspect where, where the son is saying to the father, dad, I can't wait for you to die. And, and because I'm so impatient for you to die. Just go ahead and give me what I, what is due me. Let's get the preliminaries over and give me what I want. Can you imagine as a parent for one of your children to come to you and say that? Can you imagine you going to one of your parents and saying that? I wish you were dead, but because you're not, go ahead and give me what's due to mine, due to me. Merry Christmas. I love you. It's bold. It's ungracious. It's unloving. It's, it's, it's arrogant. And for the audience at that time, it, we, we would have heard an audible gasp because they would have been floored by this scenario. Because the son is insulting. He's so insulting his father by asking the property to be divided up. This, this goes against the very most law. And you were probably thinking to yourselves that, the, that this father, Jesus, man, this father you're talking about, if he was a good and just man, he would beat the living snot out of his son. And then he would disown him. Because that's exactly what a good and just man would do to such a bold, arrogant, unloving son. That's exactly what doesn't happen. The father does the opposite. He does the opposite of the culture. He does the opposite of what they would have expected. He let his son choose his own way. Let his son go his own way. He responds to the younger son's request by giving it to him. And like Fleetwood Mac, let him go his own way. In his own way, the son went. He took a few days to, to sell off all the cattle and the land. He got as much cash as he could. And then it says he foolishly squandered it in reckless living. We're talking a, a drunken weekend in Vegas that has gone wild to the extreme. We're talking Women, booze, drugs, fast and easy living. If you can name a bad decision involving money, this young man made it and he made it in spades. And Jesus says, one day he wakes up, and poof, all the money is gone. And all he has to show for it is a killer of a hangover and lots of questionable decisions and actions. And not only is all the money gone, now there's a severe famine. And so he has hit rock bottom. And because there's no money, because there's a famine, he now has to hire himself out as a servant to a stranger who puts him to work feeding pigs. If we're familiar with that day and time, we know the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have had the same attitude towards pigs as modern-day Muslims. Disgraceful, disgusting, dishonoring. Nothing to do with the swine. No bacon, no pork chops. Miserable way of living. But a good Jewish boy would not be doing this sort of job but Jesus adds on to it. Not only is this Jewish boy feeding the pigs but he's so ill cared for by the master that what he's serving to the pigs, he longs to eat. And understand that. The swine, the pigs, are eating better than this guy is. I don't know what's below rock bottom, but this guy has reached below rock bottom. When what the pig out of the trough is better than what you're given. And he says, finally, one day, this young man comes to his senses. He says, "He, it's time to go back home to his father. So he prepares a speech. He prepares a speech where he will repent. And he will say, let me be a servant. He, he's stealing himself. He's, ready, he's stealing himself to go home and, and to own up to all of his mistakes. And he's looking to go home to a father who has the rod ready to punish him. Father, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy to be your son, but I'm tired of keeping with pigs. Your servants are treated better than I am. Will you just let me be a servant? And he's ready for his father to rod to beat the living tar out of him and throw him out in the field like so he just wanted a servant's. he's expecting to hear from his father I told you so you moron anybody could have seen this coming there are actions and consequences you've got what you've got got coming for you but that's not the father in the story is it because what does the son find Jesus tells us it's the father who day by day stands on his front porch. There's tears in his eyes. There's worry in his heart, and he's praying. He's looking down the path from the house to the road. He's praying every day, tearful prayer, sobbing to God that he would send his boy home. He wants nothing more in the world than to see his son walking down that path, ready to come back home to the family. We're not told how long this time is. It's long enough to spend a good bit of money. We're not talking one, two days. We're talking weeks, if not months, maybe even years. Of the father coming out every morning at front porch and from sun up to sundown, looking, waiting for a son to come home. And this day, his prayers are answered. He goes out on the porch and he sees coming down the path his son. So the father looks out of distance and he sees his son. And what's Jesus say? He feels compassion and he runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. In that day in culture, it was not considered dignified for an older man to run. Even this day and age, it's not dignified for some of those older men to run. It's not a pretty sight. But in that day and age it would have required him to, to lift up his, his robes. He would have been you know, immodestly showing some ankles. and He would have sprinted. And that was just not a dignified thing for an older man to do. Yet that's exactly what the father does here. He could care less about traditions. He could care less what his neighbors thinks. What matters is his son is home. He runs down the path. He grabs up the son gives his son the biggest bear hug the son has ever had and his tears, the father's tears, wet the boy's head, wet his cheeks and the father just covers him with kisses as only a father can do. Jesus paints a picture of a reunion that should bring tears to our eyes. I am a sucker in a lot of ways. But I am a sucker especially for those videos of military personnel getting home from serving overseas and they film them I understand why I film them, but why do they guys share it with the rest of us? When well, you see the father come into the classroom to surprise his children, or to walk into the house and to surprise the family. It's just so emotional, especially that reunion between the child and the parent. And I know every time I watch it, I know what's going to happen. we end this big ball of weeping mess. if it comes up on YouTube. I will sit there and watch it soaking my face in tears. But that's the sort of reunion we see here. If we were bystanders too, if we were, if we had a chance to be there for it, even the most hard-hearted of us would be sniffling and looking around and asking, well, who's cutting onions around here? It's a tearjerker of a reunion. But Jesus is telling us it's not just bring tears to our eyes. He's, he's telling us to ask Why did it happen this way? Why did his father, who had every right to be offended, had every right to be angry, had every right just to not say a word to the boy, just point out to the farm and and, and point him out there to go to work, why did he react in this way? What's the point of the story? It's grace. It's the gracious goodness of the father that he will welcome one home who has so mortally offended him for his own selfish motives. The father had every right in the world, every right in culture to punish and to humiliate his child. And yet because of grace, the exact opposite happens. He doesn't beat them. He gathers up his robes, he runs down, he picks him up, and he kisses them until the son says, please dad, you're embarrassing me and I can't breathe, will you please put me down? And then he puts the son down, and you know how parents do, he just looks at him. My boy is home. My boy is home. That's a picture of grace, isn't it? That's, that's the grace of God explained in the way of a parable. And the wonderful thing is Jesus is telling us this because of God's people, as God's people, we know that grace. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. We don't deserve the love of God. We were born his enemies. Our sins that we have willingly Chosen have offended him. We have willingly rebelled against his perfect holiness. And yet, while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling, offending, hating God, the Father sent the Son to die for us. That's grace. God is like the Father running from the porch down the path to pick you up. To hug you to where you can't breathe. To shower you with his tears of, of joys and joy and kissing. And all that we have to do to go down that path is to repent of our sins And come to him and know that his grace is always waiting for us. That the heavenly father, even when we were dead set against him, when we hated him for who he is, when we rebelled against his grace, so loved you, so loved me that he gave his only son for us. We don't deserve Jesus and all of his benefits. Yet that's exactly what the father gives to us. That is grace. But that picture of grace doesn't end with the reunion. The son prepares his speech. He goes to the father. I, I, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I, I've sinned against heaven. And if you notice, he doesn't get through his speech. The father goes, shh. Hush. He tells the servants, go and get the best robe for my son. Now, now whose robe do you think that would have been? That would have been the father's robe. He says, go get the best robe. Go get my robe to put on my son. But there's something interesting here. He never says for his son to go bathe. He never says, why don't you hose off? Here's a bar of soap. Here's two bars of soap. Here's a washcloth. There's his son reeking of swine covered in filth skinnier than when he had left he said it doesn't matter put my my robe on him and that's grace isn't it because when we come to God we come to him in the filth of our sins and he takes the robe of Christ's righteousness and he puts it on us we don't deserve it we're filthy sinners. We would have been the crowd mocking and jeering Jesus on the cross. We have mocked and jeered Jesus in our own lives. And yet when we come in repentance, the Father takes the robe of Christ's righteousness and puts it over us. And then he says to the servant, give him a ring. And that was a sign of sonship. Giving this ring to the son is, is telling his son, you are again in the family. Does the son deserve it? No, but the father gives it. And again, that's grace. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ gave his, or God gave his only son, Christ, so that we could be his sons and daughters. And then he says, give him sandals. This time, servants wouldn't have worn shoes, but they would have fetched sandals and would have put them on the feet of their master. So here's the father. Son, here's my best robe. Here's the ring. Here are shoes. This is a sign that he's welcomed back in the household, not as a servant, but as a son. All that's happened is now in the past. The arrogance, the disrespect, the reckless living, that's now all in the past because the son is home and the father celebrates because of his gracious goodness. And that's the wonder of grace, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. When you come to the father in repentance, that robe is put on you. That ring is slid upon your fingers. Those shoes are put on and you are welcomed into the family. That while... We were still sinners. God shows his love for us and he sent Christ to die for us. That all those who have received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Then how far does this right to be a child of God goes? He sends the spirit of his son to our hearts, crying out, Abba Father so you are no longer a sly, a slave, but a child of God, and if a child of God, then the heir through God. So it's not only does God welcome us back, he, he rolls out the red carpets. Here's the robe of Christ's righteousness. Here's the ring reserved for only his children. Here's the sandals that help us walk in the path of his beloved children. Now, let us go party. I love it. It ends like that. We're going to have a barbecue. And it's going to be good. And we're told that just like the feast for the prodigal son here, when God calls us to, his, to our heavenly home, the book of Revelation tells us there will be a great feast to welcome us home. And that's grace. Receiving what we don't deserve. But because of the gracious goodness of the Father, we are lavish with it. And this is the grace we receive. Simply through receiving and resting upon Jesus alone for salvation as he's been offered in the Gospels. Every week, we, part of our confession is we confess what we believe through a shorter catechism. And I, I love the Westminster Standards. I love the Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism but I also highly recommend to you the Heidelberg Catechism. There's just a particular warmth to it that is so wonderful. And it gives us a glimpse into grace when it asks this question, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And that is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, I've never kept any of them and I'm still prone always to all evil. Yet God without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. That's a wonderful picture of grace. But here's what Jesus wants us to understand. The Father doesn't just wait with open arms for us to come home to Him. He has sent His own Son into the far country to die for us, to receive the punishment that we deserve, and then He sends His Spirit to draw us to faith in His Son and to bring Him back into fellowship with us. The triune God gave all of Himself in grace for us. And what Jesus wants us to grapple with in this is what do we do with his grace? The prodigal son at first rebelled against his gracious goodness. I think we can assume that the father's gracious goodness was known to his sons. Why else would his youngest son son be so bold to approach him with such a request? He knew his father's graciousness. Yet he chose to rebel against it. He took it for granted. He even tried to manipulate his father's grace for his own sinful greed and desires. And that can be us, can't it? We come to church, we hear about grace, we sing about grace, we know the word grace. And we can rebel against it, we can take it for granted. How many times we try to justify our own sins? By saying, Well, God's gracious he's going to forgive me. That's manipulation. That's looking into the waiting father and saying, You moron, I know you will forgive me. So I'm going to go do what I want to do. And when we see it the prodigal son is it leads him to reaching such a low point that none of us want to know it. So we don't want to be like the prodigal son at the end of the grace. We don't want to know about it, yet we make the willful choice to rebel against it. We take it for granted, we manipulate it for our own sinful greed and desires. We want to be like the prodigal son on the other end when he realizes the goodness of his father's grace. That we repent of our sins. We always run back to God. knowing we don't deserve it, but we run to him. We throw ourselves into the arms of our gracious heavenly father. And we rest in the grace of who he is and what he has done for us and what he will do for us. We want to be like those who very quickly wake up from our, our sinful stupor. And say, this isn't worth it. Before I get below rock bottom, let me go back home to my Father. Before I cause too much damage, let me go running down that path to my father. We want to always be going to the father. And this will help us avoid being like the elder brother. Because he's mad. He's mad because he's done all the right things. He's lived the right way. He stayed at the farm. He's helped out. And yet his father would still show grace and goodness to that rebellious brat of a little brother. This, this elder brother has lived in the light of the glory of grace and he has grown a hard heart to it. He cannot stand it when grace has been shown to someone else. He's never openly rebelled against his father's grace. He's just never embraced it. And that leads to a hard heart. His brother comes home and all the elder brother can do is be mad. How dare you rejoice that this boy is home? How dare we rejoice he's alive and home and ready to repent of his sins? Understand that older brother is mad about grace. And as I said earlier, it's easy for us to grow cynical. And it's easy for us to look at others and go, you do not deserve grace. And we are not the God of grace, are we? And at some point, somebody may have looked at us and said, you did not, do not deserve grace. But thank God my receiving of grace and your receiving grace isn't based upon each other, it's based upon the God of grace. And we don't want to be like the elder brother. So what does this have to do with the church? And we'll end with this. Starting next week, we're going to look at the means of grace given to the church. These are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. It's the means of grace of word, sacrament, and prayer. And these are the means that belong to the church. The question is, how do we respond to these means of grace? In the means of grace, we find the Father waiting for us because of the Son and brought on by the Holy Spirit. But the question is, how do we come before the Word? How do we come before sacraments? How, how do we come before the prayer? Like the prodigal son on this side, rebelling against it, taking it for granted, manipulating it for our own needs? Or the prodigal son on this side. Always run into it. Give me more in the word. Give me more in prayer. Give me more in the sacraments. I need more grace. Are we like the elder brother? I'll take it, but it's not for you. I'll take it. But unless you're just like me, you're one of my friends, I don't want you to have it. So as we prepare to look at the means of grace. Let's first see how grace is in our own lives. The Father is waiting. Will you run down the path to him? Or will you rebel? Or will you be angry? Pray with me.